Hello. This episode was originally released as a patron exclusive. If you can, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. Now on with the show. Welcome to the Death Panel. I'm joined today by epidemiologist Abby Cardis. Hi, thanks for having me. And we are here with journalist Rachel Cohen, who is a contributing writer for The Intercept, who has been covering a lot of the school reopening debate. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you guys both for joining today. I, I think I'm so glad to have you both here today because I really wanted to speak to you two specifically about the discourse surrounding in-person schooling in the United States. And in particular, I think the way that very inconclusive or outright misleading evidence is being used to create a narrative of certainty, particularly in the media, which doesn't seem to actually reflect what the science is telling us about the actual material safety of school reopening plans. I thought maybe what we could start with is on Tuesday, January 26th, a paper was published on JAMA called Data and Policy to Guide Opening Schools Safely to Limit the Spread of SARS-CoV-2 Infection. The press immediately seized on this, and there were a couple headlines that came out of it that I pulled. So, for example, NPR reports on it and says, CDC makes the case for schools reopening. New York Times says, CDC says it's safe to reopen schools with precautions. The Hill CDC says risk of coronavirus in schools is small. So the headlines frame it as if there are new CDC guidelines supporting safe school reopenings, but that doesn't actually appear to be the case. This is not a CDC recommendation, but regardless, it's being portrayed that way. Can we get into what is actually going on here with this JAMA study? Yeah. Honestly, it's not even a study. It's There was not sort of original research. Like the most you could kind of say is like it was an, a re, it was an expert did a review of evidence, but I, I don't think it's that different from like the op-ed that two epidemiologists from Johns Hopkins wrote in Washington, in the Washington Post earlier this month that came to a different view where they just like cited a bunch of evidence and, and made their argument. And so I thought the coverage of it was interesting because definitely the way that it was being framed in the press was like, the CDC has poured through all the evidence and this is their conclusion, which wasn't true. And and my sort of reaction reading it was like, okay, well, this is interesting. If I were to interview the main author, here's the questions I would have, because there were um, studies that, you know, complicated the picture that were not mentioned in the um, in the review. And, and that's not to mean they specifically omitted it, but it, it does raise questions like how their inclusion would change some of their findings or their recommendations. Um, and obviously, people just reading the Washington Post or the New York Times write-up of it would not would assume very fairly that the study that they're reading about was fully comprehensive, did encompass all the main pieces of evidence that they need to know. Um, so that was sort of one basic thing where I felt like I'm not saying this person, you know, no, you know, bad faith to any of this. Like I think. There's there's uh, important um, citations that you know are forming the conversation, but we know there are also other studies that 
complicate this. And we also know that the write-ups of this JAMA article were being like massively simplified in ways that conveniently uh, were for like the cheapest mitigation measure. Like, oh, all you need is social distancing and masks. That was what how that was how a lot of I felt like outlets ran with it. Yeah, something that was really interesting to me about this commentary is that. It's not a data analysis and like a commentary is basically like a catch-all term, at least in <laughs> at least in epidemiology, like a commentary is kind of a catch-all term for like a piece of, you know, scientific writing that mm-hmm. usually commentaries do go through peer review, as B said, but it's not a data analysis, right? Like it's not, it's not an analysis of data and it's not uh, like a synthesis of like a formal synthesis of existing studies, right? It's kind of like an opinion piece of like scientific writing. But uh, something that was interesting to me is, you know, I thought the the content of it was pretty unobjectionable, right? Like I think that the content of the commentary is, was all pretty common sense. Um, But what's very interesting to me is like the kind of selective uptake of, you know, not just this commentary, but, you know, certainly lots of other things like it where, you know, that the actual piece of writing or the actual study is something that's quite measured, right? And says, you know, right. like, well, mm-hmm. you know, schools can be made safer if we implement all these mitigation strategies and if we control community transmission, if we prioritize, you know, closing non-essential businesses. But what gets reported is like schools are safe. It's no big deal. Right. And like that <laughs> is a very interesting kind of like transmutation to me where like these, uh, yeah, these pieces of scientific writing you know, whether there are commentaries like this or analyses are saying, you know, schools are safer with mitigation. And then the the conversation becomes, you know, schools are safe, you know, with, with some degree of certainty. And from where I kind of sit, it looks like a lot of places are straight up kind of ignoring the need for mitigation um, in schools. So I had spoke to some teachers in West Virginia uh, kind of recently and what a lot of them are saying is like, oh, like, you know, our kids don't wear masks. Like there's being no effort, you know, taken at any level to, you know, improve ventilation or to, you know, test uh, in kind of a systematic fashion in school or to do any of these mitigation measures that, you know, we're all saying are, are necessary to make schools safer. Even as there's like a parallel conversation happening in the media about, you know, expensive mitigation strategies like air filtration and regular testing. Then again, in parallel with another conversation in the media about how schools are actually just completely safe. <laughs> I, I mean, I completely agree. And I, I, had, I was in a car. I was, I had to take a lift somewhere like the day after this came out. And I just heard on the, um, I think it was NPR and they were saying, you know, CDC reported yesterday that schools are safe if they're distancing and mask. And then I saw some CNN clip that said the same thing. And but the actual JAMA viewpoint article says, you know, they say, um, you know, we need need to continue universal face masks, you know, social distancing, hybrid attendance when needed to limit the number of contacts, increasing room air ventilation and expanding screening tested to rapidly identify and isolate, you know, asymptomatic infected individuals. And I and it also said really clearly that staff and students should continue to have the options for online education. And. I just was like, mm-hmm. all of those latter details are just not reported often or, or, and I think among a lot of like people who I think maybe who's, who see themselves as like very science driven or evidence-based or whatever, they 
they see testing as like this nice, but not really essential thing. Um, they, they really sort of downplay it or like, oh, well, we, you know, they just really hand wave away the whole sort of like concept of testing, um, a regular testing as a, as a thing that is actually, if you actually do want to prioritize safety, then you should be prioritizing this measure. Um, mm-hmm, exactly. So all of that was kind of, I just, I just really agree with you about sort of the actual article. When I read it, I was like, okay, yeah, like most of this, I, I have no disagreement with, I have some questions. I'd be curious, you know, what the authors would say to this, but um, it was really just like, I got a news alert. I got like multiple phone alerts about this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I think it's really telling too because when I when I read the commentary in JAMA, I was like, this actually is not really any different from what right. we've been hearing all along, which is that, you know, there are ways if you can keep community spread down, there are ways to safely open schools, and that involves significant material investment in stuff like mm-hmm. upgrading ventilation and making sure that we're testing children even if they're asymptomatic. Uh, especially if they're asymptomatic, frankly, in my opinion, that we're providing teachers with PPE, that we're getting vaccinations to teachers, et cetera. But I think it's kind of telling that the recommendations that seem to be left out of the reporting on this commentary um, are the ones that would require material support through funding um, and public policy. You know, there is, as you mentioned, Rachel, there's mention of of masking, but the the coverage sort of, it's almost like people were waiting for something that would fit a an argument that they already had prefigured. Oh, yeah. It was also interesting. I saw a couple of, a couple of journalists sort of, I don't know if it's maybe like because there's concern that the media isn't going to go as hard on Biden as they did on Trump. But there were like a number of people in the same CNN clip I saw. It was like, oh, well, Biden said he was going to prioritize science and now he's disregarding his CDC and Ron Klain is not is not following the science of the C. You know, they all were like very excited to, to go down that road. Yeah, I mean, so Ron Ron Klain on Twitter on the 26th, referred to this this JAMA commentary as a CDC study. And I, I think mm-hmm. the idea that this commentary, which was done by people who are affiliated with the CDC, I believe, if, you know, but is not an official recommendation, which is something that the Biden administration has said that they are going to do, is that they, they have directed the Department of Education and Health and Human Services to issue guidance on school reopening. And this is not that uh, at all. <laughs> And regardless, though, it is being portrayed as such. And I I think in in a lot of ways that has so much power that, as you're saying, Rachel, it kind of creates this perception that that the CDC has co-signed reopening under whatever conditions and that now, you know, the Biden administration is not listening to science or not doing their job. And it's it's incredibly frustrating because it's part of this whole narrative that we've seen where teachers are really being portrayed as somehow, you know, too self-interested or paranoid for being very concerned about going back to school. And all of these school reopening calls don't, no one is willing to acknowledge the fact that we are not funding this and that the outcomes of doing this without being able to make sure that all school districts can afford to do this safely, it's statistical genocide, unfortunately. Yeah. And I I just want to also add that while this was definitely like the the news of this week, as we mentioned before, like the CDC's 
formal position for months now has been, you know, we should we should prioritize schools if we can, you know, depending on levels of transmission in the community, like here, you know, it can be safe under these conditions. We should try, you know, X, Y, Z. And there have been people, there have been experts um, or, you know, pundits mischaracterizing that those statements for months too, saying, oh, the CDC says it's safe. The CDC says schools should be open. And if you go and look at what the CDC has said, and obviously there have been issues with some of the CDC's, you know, recommendation around school reopening this year, and they've been vague and sort of unhelpful in some ways. And, and, but yeah, for all of the, all of the problems and all the sort of lack of clarity the CDC has given to school districts, they've, they've still not said, you know, schools are safe, they should be open in the way that even long before this week, um, many people have falsely claimed the CDC has said. Yeah. And it's, um, it's rather, I think, convenient to kind of elide this point about prioritization because it shifts who like objections should be addressed to. Right. So if you're saying like, okay, well, you know, bars and restaurants should be closed so that schools can be open. Right. Like the, the person who, or I mean, you know, the uh, interests that, that arguments for prioritization should be addressed to are political leaders and business leaders, right. Who are lobbying hard Mm -hmm. to keep all of this like non-essential all of these non-essential businesses open. But if the if the narrative is just, you know, schools are safe and they should be open, right? Mm-hmm. Then it becomes much easier to posit, you know, teachers and teachers unions um, as objects of, you know, vitriol <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and things like that. So I think certainly one consequence of like media only picking up the half of this that just says like schools are safe, schools are safe, schools are safe. Um, is like leading to a situation where, I don't know, it really feels like people are kind of turning on each other. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, you know, like parents and teachers are on the same side, (laughs) right? Like we should be closing gyms, like we should be closing restaurants. And like, there are reasons why um, those things are are staying open. And like teachers unions aren't the reasons why (laughs) those things are staying open. So I think it's, um, it's like a very interesting rhetorical I also feel like, and this was, you know, this is a little, maybe a little dated now, but you know, there was this period of time in November. um, And that was like, New York City was getting so much attention, you know, in the media as it as it always does. But like, especially then around this debate, because that's when their schools closed at the 3% level, which their, you know, district in the which the mayor had proposed doing in August. And then it got blamed on the teachers unions, even though it was the mayor's proposal, whatever. But, you know, there was sort of this loud chorus that came out then. That's And that and this was at a time when Europe, a lot of European schools were still open mm-hmm. um, or more so than today. And, and, you know, people were saying, this is ridiculous that schools are closed. Like we, you know, we should be closing the restaurants. We should be closing the bars. Like, um, and yes, to, to, to tamp down transmission, you should do those things. I I support that. I support paying workers to stay home to do those Mm -hmm. things. Um, it still might be the case that it's not safe to open schools, even if you do those (laughs) things, like it's all dependent on what is going on. And it's not like, you don't get out of, you don't just get to bypass the issue of school transmission safety by saying you support closing restaurants and schools. Like that Mm -hmm. is one way that maybe you're, we can better get to a place where schools could stay open. But like, I I felt like there was just this huge disconnect where people were like, 
you know, it just it does it just elided the the remaining issues about transmission that workers and families still have to deal with, even if we do close these other institutions, which I think is a good idea. You know, it's very frustrating because it's it's almost as if it's framed that children cannot transmit COVID on a school setting. There's this there's this uh, desire to shift blame. Um, I've seen a lot of people point to the study of Israel that happened over the summer where you had one of the largest outbreaks in Israel happen when they reopened schools. And it was associated with one high school where there was basically a huge hotspot as a result of reopening. And so many critics who are in favor of of opening schools immediately at all costs have pointed to that and said, well, see, the problem is, is that we, you know, Israel also relaxed indoor gatherings at the same time. And it's part of this whole magical realism of like children uh, cannot get and transmit coronavirus in school. This spread is living room spread. It's happening at home. It's happening in the community. It's not happening on school property. You know what I mean? Right. I don't know if you guys saw the Derek Thompson piece in the Atlantic this week, Mm -hmm. but (laughs) um, we can talk about that later. But, but he made, he, I will say, I think that I've, I've seen a lot of mainstream outlets and he did this and I've seen the times this lot, you know, they all sort of, they like to reference that situation in Israel, but in a way that then they completely like then hand wave it as it, you know, in this to not to sort of, we don't like, yes, that happened in Israel, but you know, here's why it really shouldn't be, you know, influencing how you think about the issue. And they don't, then follow what has happened in Israel since because and if you and it's interesting because we like to follow Israel for their vaccination successes like in that gets big headlines because they've been good about you know rolling out their vaccines um but in Israel they still are talking about the high transmission of children and they are and in Israel they have identified like 20% of all covid infections you know, according to their health data last week was in the groups 10 to 10 to 19. And another 19% was in like 20 to 29. And so they're like identifying massive numbers of infection. And, you know, part of it may be Haredi communities. And, you know, there there are like things around that, that, you know, you can sort of question and ask about. But I, I just think it's interesting the ways that like, Israel is sort of, I, I see people just always acting as if, the data point of Israel in May and June is the only Israel data point we have to talk mm-hmm. about that's worth talking about. And I'm like, why are you not talking about Israel now? Where it's still useful. <laughs> well, and I think it's it's interesting because that um, that article that you just referenced um, by Derek Thompson, there was actually like a quite good uh, back and forth in the replies to it um, that a bunch of epidemiologists participated in, like I did too, which is why I know. Oh, tell me more. <laughs> but uh, no, it was, I bring it up to say, you know, studies that kind of contradict the idea that schools are safe are, you know, their limitations were kind of discussed in depth in that article. Whereas uh, Mm -hmm. studies conducted, you know, for example, in the U S that support, you know, or or are being used to support the idea that schools are safe. Like those, the limitations of those studies was not really treated Mm -hmm. at length. And it's kind of a problem because all of those studies have, quite serious limitations and they kind of share the same limitations. Um, And I think those limitations, I mean, we're talking about how, you know, we're not investing in schools, right? Mm -hmm. Like chronic uh, disinvestment in schools is being reflected in this like inability to implement 
you know, these complex mitigation measures. But I think even like the production of knowledge uh, or of science about schools is also kind of hampered by chronic disinvestment in public health, because like as just one example, you know, many of the studies that were referenced both in the um, in the commentary in JAMA and in the Atlantic piece, you know, they purport to show that schools are safe. But, you know, when you actually read them, they're quite measured because mm -hmm. they're not able to do extensive contact tracing or outbreak investigation. Right. And so, you know, they're relying on local health departments that maybe have really variable levels of resources, like right. in a setting where there's already very high transmission and it's not clear that, you know, contact tracing is being done extensively or comprehensively, you know, for everyone, you know, they're, they're not systematically testing children, you know, or staff asymptomatic or not, you know, either in school or out of school, right? Like all of these like weaknesses and inadequacies in the public health system are reflected in like how these, how these studies are conducted. And the, you know, the authors of these studies typically are pretty clear eyed about that and pretty upfront, right. right. About how these things really limit the strength of the conclusions that you can draw mm -hmm. um, from the studies. But yeah, like when they get picked up in media, all of a sudden it's like, Oh, you know, schools are safe. Like there was this, um, this recent study, um, that was conducted in Wisconsin. And I think it was published in like mm -hmm. the morbidity and mortality weekly report. Um, yeah. And I mean, we might want to get into this later because I think that this is very interesting, but it was kind of showing over like this, I think it was like a 12 week study period, you know, rates of COVID infection among students and staff versus in, I guess, like the county where the study was conducted overall. And the crux of the of the paper and what really got picked up on in media was like, oh, you know, the, the student and staff rate is much lower than the <laughs> county overall rate. But if you look at them, they're both incredibly high, right? Like <laughs> right. the student and staff rate was like 3,453 per 100,000 over this 12 week period, which if you kind of split it out by day, I think that mm -hmm. comes out to like 40 per 100,000 per day, where wow. like, you know, 25 per 100,000 per day is considered you know, to be like a dangerous level of spread necessitating mitigation. So that was like the student and staff rate, the county overall, it was like 5,500 per 100,000, which comes out to like 60 infections wow. per day, right? Like, so yeah. I even, I mean, I said this Staggering. on, yeah, I said this on Twitter, but I was like, I'm looking at this and just seeing a pandemic that is out of control everywhere, right? Mm -hmm. And like, these authors are saying that, you know, there's no systematic um, COVID surveillance, like, either in school or in the community. So there's probably lots of potential to miss, you know, asymptomatic infections, school-related transmissions, you know, infections that are like picked up in school and transmitted then like out into the community. Like we're just not really able to, I mean, like the resource constraints of like local public health departments are okay. such that we're not really able to like look for <laughs> in-building transmission the way that we ideally would like to. And you know, that's like, that's okay. Like in public health, you know, we do stuff with kind of imperfect data all the time, but it's just interesting that like, you know, even this, even this study that had some pretty important limitations, you know, it's, it's demonstrating, you know, outrageous levels of COVID transmission, you know, both among uh, students and staff and in the, in the, the community overall. But the fact that the student and staff rate together was like a little bit lower is taken to be evidence, 
you know, certainly in the reporting that like, oh, you know, it must not be schools that are really contributing mm-hmm. to this level of spread. And it's like, I don't know if that's the the conclusion that I would draw. Um, yes, I, so yeah, my, one of my issues with the Atlantic article, which I couldn't even bring myself to like do another thread <laughs> out. Cause I was like, there's just these every day and they're always from like, you know, white guys were dropping into this conversation, having not comment, you know, just like out of nowhere, it was like, the tone was really smug. And it was also, you know, a teacher that a teacher tagged me in a thread she did in responding to it. And it was really condescending about sort of assuming that, assuming that educators and, you know, parents that are, um, you know, that they were just misinformed by a New York Times headline in July on that, on that South Korea study, or they just like, read something in is about Israel in May and just have never updated their information since like as opposed to the reality which is that educators are working really really hard to try to yeah. understand what's going on because they're the ones that have to deal with this and and I was just so frustrated by the way that it was like sort of doing this like grab bag of of studies that we that got a lot of attention over the summer and early fall and then like a couple things from like this past week so it made it look appear as if it was like a really comprehensive overview but again like it just omitted lots of other things and was way too, um, I just felt like the whole thing was very smug. Um, but it also, but I also like to your point about, um, Wisconsin, I made this point on my newsletter this week, but we generally understand now, okay, the, like the, the probability of transmission is higher in indoor spaces with masks off when people are eating. That's why indoor dining, you know, raises the risk of transmission. That's why, oh, we should try to close those places if we're going to close places and et cetera. Um, a really interesting thing that I've, I had been following or reading about was how, you know, there are just these like vast number of, um, restaurant trade groups filing lawsuits in cities because they say that, you know, the cities have not been able to prove that their restaurants are actually driving spread like that. (laughs) And, and it's, you know, um, and, and in some cases they're winning because of the city's contact tracing is showing um, like there was one uh, in New York in, in New York City, contact tracing data attributed only 1.4 percent of new cases from September through November to people going to restaurants and bars. Um, now, like obviously that that seems extremely low, but if you think about like the fact that 80 percent of people weren't even like didn't know or, or people weren't answering or most people just said they got it at home, um, and so the National Restaurant Association you know, saying the only data that's really sufficient is data that clearly links sustained virus transmission to dining in restaurants. And I just think like most of us hear that and we think, well, that's, that's ridiculous, but that's exactly the kind of attitude that's being applied to the school reopening debate where they say, well, can you actually prove that the infection occurred in school? And therefore, right. um, that's why we should like target the school instead of asking people to use their like common sense of, okay, well, what do we know about how this virus spreads? And like, what raises the likelihood and what decreases it. Um, and the public health experts for the restaurant groups, like said, look, we're not, we're, we're not going to get the kind of ironclad data to enact the kind of public health measures in this crisis um, that it, it like, that's just not going to happen. And, and I feel like people, we, we've accepted that that's the case for restaurants, but for schools, it's, it's like, Oh, but this, our contact tracing does not link it to a school definitively. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that, that you mentioned, Rachel, that I think is 
really important and I want to circle back to for a second, which is the the sort of framing that uh, teachers and parents are being hysterical for being mm-hmm. concerned. And, you know, as we're saying, people who are advocating for full speed school reopening right now are cherry picking data. They are misrepresenting things that are quite even handed and um, Mm -hmm. empirical, and they are selectively translating the science to the public in a way that supports their their pre-existing opinions. And I won't uh, speculate as to what their motivations are, but it's I think quite interesting that these these same people are also accusing parents and teachers of doing the same thing. I mean, I, I definitely just the level of, of condescension to teachers and acting and, and, and parents that are nervous about sending their kids back. It's either narratives that I've heard the whole, for like months now is either that, you know, if, if parents are concerned, it must be because they've read alarmist media coverage that scares them, you know, and, <laughs> and um, it, it's just so crazy because it disregards the fact that these are parents with, you know, a lot of, a lot of experience with these same school districts. They understand the promises that get made and broken year after year. They understand the kind of resources that the schools, um, they know what kind of healthcare they're likely to get if, if their family gets sick. Um, and so all of that, uh, being said, and I, I do think that the ways that that many of the people who've been most eager to reopen schools have sort of couched it around this idea that well, we have to do it, or else you know, poor black and brown children are going to like fall behind for the rest of their lives, and that we're going to ruin them for decades and decades. It's it's so, I mean, it's been it's been ex- extremely frustrating to watch, and I do feel like it's start like more people are starting to realize that that is crap than they had a couple months ago. Um, even though we had data a couple of months ago to we've, we've had data since the summer to show that there's been huge disparities about who is playing, would want to go back or is trying to go back ASAP. Um, but I do feel like, you know, now like David Brooks is writing a column and you have like, you know, the fact that Alec McGillis's big ProPublica piece that everybody praised um, just sort of hand-waved the fact that the Black mother in the story didn't want to send mm-hmm. her child back. And, like, that was just sort of not important to people from, for uh, like, for most of the people who were reading about the tragedy of remote learning. I guess my main point is that there's been a lot of resistance to trying to provide supports to families in the situation that they are now to help them stay home from work, to help, you know, make virtual learning better, do investments in making this kind of opportunity, do more outdoor learning. Um, mm-hmm. Right now in Chicago with the teachers battle, uh, the battle over in-person learning, like I- I've noticed like all the local education reporters there are saying, okay, well this fight, you know, it's, as we cover it, what are you going to do about the 80% of kids who do not plan on going back anytime soon? Right. Um, and why have, why do we not talk about that? Yeah. Well, that's like, that's the, the paternalism of the like discourse in media is expressed as a certainty, right? Like a certainty yeah. that schools are safe. And like, you know, we have this evidence right. and it clearly shows that schools are safe, but 
it doesn't really, you know, like parents and teachers, I think are perfectly, you know, well-equipped, perfectly qualified to understand and have questions about, you know, the risks to them, Mm -hmm. um, and to their, to their families. But it's like, it's really, um, the like translation of this research to like communication, you know, to like both teachers and families is, I I just think it would be a much different conversation if both experts and, you know, like people in media were just had like a little bit more respect for their audiences. Yeah. (laughs) That makes sense. You know, and we're just like, okay, well, you know, we know there are some risks. The studies that we have are limited, but they do suggest that, you know, with X, Y, Z measures, things can be safer. Like, how do we, you know, how do we, like, I I just feel like it would be a different conversation if the conversation were, how do we work with you to, to mitigate these risks, you know, that we know, like, you know, we, we're, we're pretty clear on some of them. We're less certain about others. Um, You know, how do we work with you to make this, you know, a possibility, but instead the conversation is, you know, you're, you're stupid. You're being manipulated by your union, right? Right. you don't have an MD, like you can't read these studies. I mean, I would argue that there's really no like disciplinary core to epidemiology, but like the one thing that you do learn is like how to read a study. <laughs> and, um, I think a lot of the experts that are messaging around this are, you know, clinicians, clinical mm-hmm. experts who are maybe kind of lightly trained in epidemiology and like maybe don't know as well how to read a study. And so mm-hmm. are kind of taking away from, you know, these multiple studies um, that all kind of share the same big limitations that, you know, it's just totally safe. And then like feeling empowered to like transmit that message to, you know, teachers and and parents. Um, yeah. And it's like, it's, it's a frustrating dynamic to watch. I think, I think it's also interesting because, you know, we, I feel like there is a, a more sensitive sort of uh, concerted effort to treat vaccine hesitancy with respect and trying to like you know meet people where they are and Deference, you know, treat yeah. their yeah treat the concerns as legitimate but uh whereas with school reopenings a there actually is a lot more risks to health than taking the vaccine but there's mm-hmm. like a much lower level of like respect for the fears and concerns that people have <laughs> is sort of yeah. from those same people and right. it's just like, and I made this, I, I've said this before, it's like, they're just being honest about the risks feels so important because some people are still going to say, I think like I can, I can take on that risk. That is something I, um, you know, me and my family can do. We understand what the institution is doing to, to mitigate. We know what we can handle on our end. So we're going to make this choice, but instead it's just been like a completely different conversation from, you know, school district leaders and, and some media outlets. And, and I guess the other thing that I I was just sort of thinking is like, you're just asking a lot of people to suspend a lot of the things that they are being told often by other government officials about these same things. Like, for example, I, um, I live by myself. I, you know, COVID has sucked in so many ways. I would love to go to a friend's house and sit six feet apart and wear a mask and watch a movie. But I'm not going to do that because I am told very clearly not to do that, you know? Right. But mm-hmm. isn't it weird that, oh, I'm not supposed to go hang out inside with someone who's not in my bubble, even if I'm social distancing and mask, but we are saying it's safe to do that in a school with 
hundreds of kids. Like it just and not just for two hours for a movie for six or three or eight hours. Even mm-hmm. if you're doing a half day, it's significantly eating. long. Right? Mm-hmm. It's such it's much longer exposures than the kind of exposure that you have. You know, going into non-essential businesses, frankly. Mm-hmm. And I think the sort of lack of evidence is is being pointed to as as fact of of safety mm-hmm. and that's totally a social construction it's not it's not real and i think a lot of it comes down to the fact that we know it's super unsafe uh as it stands to be having like as you're saying rachel the conditions of school go against basically all common sense right. covid recommendations and yet school has become this fix all child care for the American workforce. And I think, you know, we have the Biden team in office now. And one of Biden's goals in his first 100 days is to get schools open. And he's been working closely with the Rockefeller Foundation. Mm -hmm. And they, in their reports, even plainly say that school reopening is a top priority, quote, In-person instruction is central to a strong economy, not only because of its educational benefit, but also because tens of millions of adults cannot work effectively or at all until their children are back in the classroom consistently. And for that reason, to the Rockefeller Foundation, the stakes are high, not for the reasons that, you know, the conditions of a schoolroom are high transmission probability situations, you know, and it's absolutely perverse the way that this has been completely framed as, um, you know, an overreaction, manipulation by unions of the workers. And it's it's all this socially constructed lie that there is this sort of magical safety that occurs in the classroom that we must move towards at all costs, no matter who dies, no matter who gets sick, most important is bringing the economy back up to that full capacity. I I remember in November, um, there were like, this honestly must have been in at least five different articles. I I started to, I was going crazy, but there was a number of um, like local New York City school pieces in the New York Times that was saying, in what would be the biggest setback to New York City's recovery, like schools might close again. (laughs) Um, and it's like, no, the biggest setback is the resurging virus as we're heading into the winter. And it just kept blaming the fact that schools might need to close as being the reason New York city wouldn't recover. And it was, and I, but I think that is honestly where some people's like how some people see it because they see open schools as like a big indicator of confidence. And that is important for, you know, investors and, uh, you know, other things. Yeah. The underlying problem is that like we are not doing anything to control the pandemic and like everybody right. <laughs> loses as a result mm-hmm. of that everyone like, everyone. Yeah. everyone it's Literally. like it is completely unfair to everyone except for i'm guessing the like captains of industry right like who are really pulling the strings behind the scenes or someone who that, wants like, to escape accountability for not having delivered any meaningful fiscal support to states and local governments yeah so i don't know i'm cooking up like i'm cooking up a galaxy brain take but i'm actually we can cut this out i'm not gonna say it because i think it's too nuts but maybe we i mean can you get can there, but... you can say it already i mean we can always cut it out later so like something that i have been kind of of thinking about is this like tension that is emerging between um, 
the principle of like evidence-based decision-making, which is like, I think Mm -hmm. this comes out of medicine, right? Like evidence-based medicine is the idea that, you know, like the, the latest, the best evidence should be used to guide the care of individual patients. And I think you're seeing this kind of like, I mean, the public health discourse in the U.S. is dominated by people who are actually clinicians, right? And maybe have like a little bit of public health training. Um, and so I think on the one hand, there's like this really this really strong desire to use this, you know, evidence, these studies that we have about schools to guide decision-making. And, you know, as we've talked about, you know, the limitations of those studies aren't really getting picked up. Like, I don't think the quality of those studies, you know, through no fault of, of the authors, but, you know, for all the reasons that we've talked about, um, I don't think that those studies lend themselves handily towards making, you know, policy decisions at like whatever level of government. Um, but I'm seeing, you know, there's a, r- a real strong desire to use this evidence to like guide policy and open schools. And like, mm-hmm. you know, we're saying it's safe. But on the other hand, you know, in, in public health, and I, I'm assuming other fields, you know, we have this thing called the precautionary principle, which mm-hmm. sort of like pushes in the other direction, right? And so the precautionary principle is the idea that, you know, in situations where there is a lot of uncertainty, <laughs> right? A lot of like scientific uncertainty, and where there is a potential for harm, uh, you know, decisions should come down on the side of caution and on the side of prevention. And I'm kind of sensing like a push-pull between like the kind of evidence-based decision-making, you know, like if we, yeah. you know, we, we have, we're saying that we have evidence that schools are safe, you know, we don't have evidence that schools are unsafe, even though, you know, we do, right? Like, I mm-hmm. don't think that the evidence right. is being interpreted quite correctly, but like this really strong desire to like use the evidence to drive policy. And then this kind of like principle that underlies a lot of public health saying like, no, it's actually, you know, if there's the potential for people to be harmed by this and we don't really know, you know, then we should come down on the side of, of preventing that harm. Um, I think, I think it has a lot to do with how kind of like medicalized public health mm-hmm. is and how like a lot of public health is driven by people who are clinically trained um, and not necessarily trained in, you know, population level thinking. Yeah, no, I, I think that I think that that tension is very tangible. I think that there is um, there. And this is sort of something that we've been talking about this whole time, which is just the the manufacturing of this idea that things are safe and that the safety is based on evidence based uh, results, but that that framing when it's reproduced in the media, doesn't acknowledge the faults because the point is not to actually be safe, but it's to convince people that things are safe because you've already accepted this, um, you know, minimum level of death that's just, um, that these deaths are just pulled from the future. You're already accounting for these deaths as being inevitable on your balance sheet, rhetorically speaking. And so by, by, pursuing this sort of evidentiary framing supporting something that is in fact actually socially constructed which is this idea of safety in schools it's a justification for what you know this accounting of these deaths that are just gonna happen and we've made a decision that that it's not worth spending the money required to mitigate that yeah and i mean i know that the the tension between um 
you know, epidemiologists trained in population health versus like clinicians and pediatricians who uh, have been widely quoted in the media throughout this whole pandemic on schools has, has, has been a major um, has been a major issue. And obviously, Abby, I know you know this, but, you know, when the American Academy of Pediatrics, uh, you know, came out with their recommendations in June, you know, they eventually had to walk back mm -hmm. their language by August, although that got way less attention. I remember I got a news alert in June for about <laughs> the, the, uh, from the New York Times about that. And I, I think, I mean, I, I definitely think your point is right. And I think it's not just amongst like clinicians who, who, who sort of created that, but I, I just think there's this whole sort of like liberal policy apparatus that we have in mm -hmm. so many spheres that just like craves data and like love likes to see itself as evidence-based policy driven. And so that's why like the uncertainty that we had over the summer and fall and that obviously we still have, but I, I think especially then when people really wanted to open up schools and they really wanted to know if it was safe to do so. And instead of um, sort of kind of living with the uncertainty a little bit and saying, well, this is what we know about the virus and this is what we don't know. And so maybe we need to like err on the side of extra caution or maybe we need to do X, Y, Z. We instead sort of like grabbed at any numbers that could and you know, people really sort of like suspended some of their normal levels of critical thinking and scrutiny because I think they're in some ways you get you were you were like rewarded for say for like trying to be data driven even if the data is faulty or weak or yeah yeah so I think like I want to be clear like evidence based decision making is good right like right. <laughs> it is good yeah. to like make decisions based on evidence. But the, the thing that's important to realize is, you know, data don't speak for themselves, right? And data are like any, you know, any data that you collect are sort of compatible with multiple states of nature, right? Mm -hmm. And like how you interpret data is obviously like ideologically inflected. And like there was an example of this from the, um, the New York Times article about the JAMA commentary mm -hmm. um, so like multiple layers of like media but um there are in the so New York many Times, though <laughs> yeah the New York Times article brought up um the COVID-19 school response dashboard which you know like we've talked about a little bit and the way that it framed it was you know for a while um earlier in the fall the COVID-19 school response dashboard for I think like New York and Texas are the states that are doing the most kind of like complete reporting to the data and I can't remember which state it was, but in the article it was saying, oh, you know, like in the fall, you know, the, the dashboard was showing uh, staff, school staff rates of infection mm -hmm. that were lower than in the surrounding community. Um, and I, I mean, I remember at that point in the fall when that was happening and people were taking that to mean, you know, that schools are safe. Then this New York Times article goes on to say, now, <laughs> you know, this dashboard is showing higher rates among staff than among, you know, members of the surrounding community. And the, the article is like, well, the causes of this are not clear. And it's right. like, well, yeah, they're not clear. And then the article suggests that this could be because teachers are being tested at a much higher rate. And that's definitely possible, right? Like that is one state of nature that is compatible with those data. 
But there is another state of nature that's compatible with those data, which is that teaching in person is an occupational risk for COVID, right? right? But like, yeah. that was kind of glossed over. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the New York Times article was just like, oh, well, you know, we just, we don't, you know, we don't know, but it's probably something funny going on. Like, there's probably some bias uh, involved. Right. It's like, yeah, I mean, maybe, but, you know, the, the data aren't collected, you know, like, they're not set up and collected to be able to really, like, answer that uncertainty or to resolve that uncertainty, right? And like, maybe that certainty is not warranted either mm-hmm. <laughs> when like the dashboard, for example, is showing something that comports with, you know, this idea that schools are safe, totally safe to reopen and like that there's no risk or like very easy, very easily mitigatable risk. Right, right, right. Manageable and risk. I, and, and I should yeah. say like, I if, if this was unclear, I also think that, like evidence-based policy is good. I guess what I was just trying to say is I think uh, it can lead people to overstate the value of the evidence in cases when we want to move forward, but we don't know what to do. And, you know, I I think like there's a challenge there of just sort of acknowledging the, you know, you want people to have confidence in your decisions. And so that could lead a leader to downplay the Caveats that the researchers don't downplay in their papers, you know? Yeah. And I think it can lead to like an over-interpretation of a lack of evidence too. Right. Um, Mm Because I think for a long time, you know, I mean, schools were mostly closed, you know, throughout the spring and like there was stuff coming out in the summer, you know, and people were making all these really bold claims, you know, schools are safe. Kids don't get COVID. Kids don't transmit COVID. You know, the kids don't pick it up in school. And it's like, okay, but there's actually like, you know, it's, I mean, it's like the old adage, right? That like an absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. Right, <laughs> but right. Like, yeah, exactly. I think that like this kind of approach to evidence can also lead people to overinterpret right. lack of evidence just as much as they kind of overinterpret um, existing or very limited evidence. Well, it's like you're saying, like, you have to make the data talk. And there's a big difference between basing a decision on the available evidence and using evidence to support decision making and using evidence to measure the success of policy interventions and appropriating evidence to justify decisions. And I think that that's the distinction is that there are people who are claiming that they are making evidence-informed policy choices, but actually what they're doing is they're not informed by the evidence, they are appropriating evidence which supports the decisions and justifies the decisions that they want to make. I mean, this is one thing that we've been talking about on this show from the beginning of the pandemic since March, which is that so much of what we're seeing in the policy response to this pandemic is this dance of of creating and passing liability and really trying to like prefigure who is to blame in a way that that avoids culpability for people who failed to act. And I think that's really what we see here. I mean, if we talk uh, that Rockefeller report that I, I briefly mentioned earlier, that Rockefeller report comes to its conclusions that it is safe to open schools by February 1st so that, you know, as I was saying, so that workers can actually work because we can't fully have a productive economy until parents are not distracted by home learning. Um, the, the data that Rockefeller Foundation used to come to that conclusion is Emily Oster's COVID-19 school response 
dashboard, which, you know, maybe for people who aren't familiar with with uh, with the show and haven't listened to the previous time we had Abby on where we talked about some of the problems with the tracker, we could get into why this is like more obviously an appropriation of available evidence to justify a political and ideological position that like the Rockefeller Foundation was trying to prove. <laughs> I mean, it's like the the way that the dashboard has been appropriated over the past couple of months has been as this sort of resource to point to um, so that people can sort of say like, okay, here, look, we're getting this reported data from the COVID-19 school response dashboard. You know, we, here's the data that we're getting in and this is, you know, showing us X, Y, Z. And so it was being cited and people were not necessarily not acknowledging the fact that like a lot of the data was self-reported. And so it's, you know, that in a way, the way that the the dashboard sort of was represented in the media as this golden fleece resource, right, that was presenting an, a complete picture of what school infections were, which did not correspond to what the data actually are, as you're saying, Abby, like that that sort of was the foundation that was laid it like that's the sort of uh the baseline uh consent and and safety that was sort of established was this idea of this data driven school response and it sort of laid the groundwork for what we're seeing here with this JAMA paper and what we've seen as we've said over and over with like, constantly appropriating this data-driven scientific product for something that's not necessarily reflective of the original um, piece, but what it's how it's framed in the media and how it's socially reproduced and how it's used to inform decision-making is then this sort of uh, overinflated, uh, almost like m- magical version of certainty, you know? Yeah. That's definitely true. So like I've been in touch with um, a teacher in West Virginia who is an organizer like with the West Virginia United Caucus. He asked me and um, Justin Feldman, who's also been on the show to kind of come and like talk to um, Mm -hmm. their caucus about, you know, kind of what's going on in West Virginia. And, you know, what's going on in West Virginia is that uh, state officials and health officials in West Virginia are, you know, using this dashboard to say school is safe and you can go back. Uh, there's, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's going on in West Virginia, but, you know, they're definitely using the dashboard that way. There is not, you know, in any sense, like comprehensive investment in mitigation of, you Mm -hmm. know, the risks of teaching in person. And I actually went into the dashboard to, to try to look at, you know, what the data were like for West Virginia. And at the time that I was looking, you know, this, this may have changed, but, you know, participation in the dashboard is voluntary. And um, from what I was able to find when I went and looked was that like, no schools in West Virginia had reported any information yeah. since August, right? Like since I guess like the baseline, yeah. you know, survey that was administered or whatever. So like, you know, on the one hand, you have state officials saying like, oh, yeah, this thing says that it's safe. But then if you go and look like there, there was not even any data in it for West Virginia. Now, I mean, you know, you could get into how appropriate it is to generalize from like other states that were like reporting more data to West Virginia. But um, yeah, there's like a real disconnect between, <laughs> you know, like what what the data are or like are not and then how this is like picked up and kind of run with. Um, 
by people that yeah. actually do have power over these decisions right. about, you know, sending, you know, teachers and students back to in-person instruction. So I'll say, so I'm, I have a, I've been doing like a piece on, um, you know, this question of whether Biden can reopen in a hundred days. And um, I actually think uh, it's going to, it's, it's a much, it's a, it's an easier goal than it sounds because like right now, you know, the Burbio tracker says 50% of students already have access to some, you know, in-person learning in schools. And, um, and he's, and since it's excluding high schools and the goal, um, and because reopen schools doesn't mean students have to go back, you know, it just means that like there needs to be the option for at least some, like, I, I feel like it's the kind of goal that's actually not as hard to meet as maybe some might think it is, but I was reading the executive order they had issued. Um, and I guess I've just been thinking on this during this conversation, like while there was that sort while there was sort of this chaos around the JAMA article last week, like there will be CDC guidance that comes out eventually. And I feel like <laughs> I feel fairly nervous and sure that it will be yeah. strongly mischaracterized whenever that does come out. Um, just based on like what we've seen and like, I guess, I guess my, my hope is that, that it, my hope and sort of expectation is that it will be responsible and measured and like not making the kinds of claims that people have character caricatured the CDC to make. But um, I guess just sort of recognizing we're surely going to have this like new round of like, Oh, I thought you were for science. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. bullshit. Oh, gosh. yeah, I, I think that's, I think that's definitely a possibility. And I even have in my notes, like, don't forget the fact that right now it's not official from the CDC that this is like, you know, that all we need is personal responsibility and masks to reopen is not the official CDC position. Like, it's it's not unlikely that in a matter of days or weeks that could be official. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's there's the sort of politics of like how those recommendations are framed and and where they lie politically are are one thing but the fact of the matter is the goal at the end of the day to accomplish is to sort of avoid paying people to stay home yeah. and uh and do that almost at any cost and i think that the the school reopening debate is really kind of just it's one of the biggest pieces of collateral from that that decision making, which is an ideology that there are lives that are not valuable enough to justify taking the hit to GDP for a little bit. I think it's, um, it's bad. Like COVID is really (laughs) bad. And it's, I think, of paramount importance to control transmission of COVID, like, immediately. And hard agree. And we're not doing it. And we're not doing nothing. Literally and, nothing is changing. <laughs> and yeah, nothing is changing. And the, the, the recommendations and kind of the proposals that are on the table, I have serious like fears that they are not sufficient, right? So like we read all the time about how like, oh, everyone should be double masking or everyone should be able to get an N95. And even leaving aside, you know, the time and the difficulty of like and distribution and, and expense of like, you know, supplying, you know, N95 or KN95 masks to everybody. Like, 
people like most people in the U S wear masks, <laughs> you know, like it's like mask compliance in the United States is, is like already pretty good. So it's like not clear to me that just like doubling down, you know, kind of right. like, like B said on like, you know, personal responsibility, like choosing to wear a mask, you know, when you leave the house, mm-hmm. you know, to go to a, a DSW that's open for some reason, <laughs> you know, right. like it's like not clear that the kind of, um, tar- like what's often called like targeted measures, what I think are really kind of half measures that offload the responsibility for doing pandemic response onto just like individuals making good choices, kind of ignoring all the ways that those choices are constrained. I'm like very concerned that that's not going to be enough. So this, this is my plug for <laughs> like a, a ge- like a paid shutdown, you know, with generous financial support for individuals and businesses, because we're just going to keep going around this carousel over and over and over again until we like actually get serious about trying to clamp down on COVID transmission and like yeah. all of these, yeah. all of these problems like stem from the fact that there's like a raging uncontrolled pandemic that like our last president did nothing about. Yeah. Right? And if we like deal with that, like a lot of these other problems will. I, I don't know if like, and Abby, I'm, I'm definitely curious if you have opinions on this, but um, you know, I, I don't know if you guys saw Ezra Klein's op-ed on Friday about like, you know, the, you know, the importance of the next six weeks, because, you know, 300,000 lives are at stake. And, and, you know, and I completely agree with that, that like, I think people that like, what we do is in the next two months is so important for the next, like, for just the course of this pandemic. Um, But what I thought was so sort of frustrating, just goes to what you're saying about targeted measures, like, there's this idea that it is, more practical and more feasible that we're going to somehow be self-administering at home rapid tests to ourselves every single day (laughs) (laughs) nationwide than it is to do a, like a paid lockdown. And we literally don't have the chemicals to process those tests. Like Like, we we don't have any reagent. How would we fucking do that? We also like at the time when everyone's saying, oh, you know, the virus is getting worse, everyone should really upgrade to, to N95s or K95s to get better masks. Like, nobody has those masks. Like, people, like, teachers don't have them. Like, I mean, obviously, medical professionals do, and like, some people do, but like, we, you, this, the idea that we're gonna somehow, like, that, that this is, and the, the, just the idea that it's gonna happen or happen at speed it drives me crazy. But I thought the other thing was like, you know, they quoted Michael Mina, and I just thought this, <laughs> saying this is a public health issue and if we don't empower the public to deal with it we won't be able to defeat it and oh i just thought yeah. like that's, that's the no most good. you know like, oh yeah no it's it's really really frustrating because not only is like yeah it's all of these like technocratic recommendations that actually mm-hmm. are completely disconnected from like the reality of what's yeah. going on right like nobody can get kn95s nobody can get a vaccine slot right like Nobody right. can actually do any of these things. And so making these, these little, yeah. These we're not going to, we're not going to test ourselves every single day. Like that's just not going to like, how would we how get, would, I mean, what, right. what part of looking at the vaccine rollout gives you confidence that we exactly. could like distribute <laughs> right. antigen tests to like every household in the cut. Like, I just, I don't understand it, but like, I also want to flag that there's also, this is talked about as if it is more acceptable to the general right. public to do things right. this way which I actually profoundly disagree with because I am pretty sure that like nobody wants to get COVID and die of it. Like 
no one. Like it is not <laughs> like most people do want to be protected from this like potentially lethal virus. But the conversation revolves around this like, yeah, these bizarre like technocratic fixes that don't really reflect kind of like the lived reality that people are dealing with. Right. And then, yeah, this idea totally. that it's totally unacceptable to people to have their, you know, their quote unquote freedom restricted by like a temporary paid uh, shutdown of the sort that we did, you know, earlier. Even though all surveys show they're very popular. Yeah, you know, right. all surveys show they're very popular. And it's just like, where is this idea coming from that this is that like right. <laughs> controlling the virus would be unacceptable to everyone, but like 300,000 deaths baked into the next, you know, eight weeks or whatever. Right. That, like, that's fine. That's acceptable right. in public opinion, but like doing anything about it isn't. Like, I don't know. I don't know where that comes from. And now I'm sort of heated. So I apologize. I, oh, no. Like, I feel like it's like the question even isn't even like, where does it come from? It's like, how is it being constructed? Right. Mm -hmm. And like, mm -hmm. how do we stop it from being constructed? Because the reality is the, the opposition to doing a paid shutdown is something that is requiring coordinated construction in the media. I mean, mm -hmm. I did PR. This is how you do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you pick a narrative, you place stories and you find things that support what you're trying to argue because you're trying to be persuasive and you have a goal in mind. And it's, you know, right now the goal is not to like sell some luxury fashion product. The goal is to like sell the idea that we don't need to do a paid shutdown, which is why it's right. so important to be advocating for one right now, because all of these framings are just trying to avoid the very accessible, simple problem that Low tech. Are, yeah, simple <laughs> fix to the problem, rather, you know, that we have at our fingertips available readily and yet refuse to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and in terms of like manufacturing like consent, I do feel like, you know, the fact that I see the same five epidemiologists quoted in like 80% of news articles and like it just and they all somehow <laughs> all are saying, you know, in the same range of things um, like that, that should raise a lot of facts. Now that, that was a big part of like my story back in October of just like, wait, yeah. the, and, and that's why like, it's like the biggest, one of the biggest frustrations is just acting has been the suggestion that, I mean, not even just suggestion, like the statement that there's been public health consensus on a lot of these questions yeah. when there has not been. And a lot of these things are still very much like, being studied and and TBD and, yeah 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 no and and Rachel that's why I really have appreciated the coverage that you've been doing of the pandemic because it's very hard to find things that are absent these biases you know <sighs> this has been so much fun despite the fact that it's a you know insurmountably <laughs> depressing topic I know. um is there yeah, this has been really cool so. Yeah, I mean, I feel like this might be a good place to leave it. And, you know, everything we've discussed will probably change any moment now. Um, <laughs> but there'll so be constants, is, I think. Like, there's yeah. definitely been, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think the bottom line is that, that right now everyone should be, like, using their full capacity to yeah. scream for a shutdown, uh, for a paid shutdown, most importantly, because... Mm -hmm. We're, we've gotten to the point of community spread where we're actually out of other viable options for trying to lower the 
like rate of viral reproduction in the population. And the you know, if you're if you've gotten through this whole episode now and you don't listen to the show, go back in the feed and listen to my uh, interview with Dr. Paul Binash, um, where we talk about like selective pressure and the virus replication and there's a lot of debunking about the variant discourse, so I highly recommend it. But we don't want this much community spread because we're applying selective pressure on the virus. And we've spent a lot of money and time investing in these vaccines that we're barely able to roll out. Please, let's try and not need a whole new round of vaccinations before we even finish getting this one done. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you guys both for coming on today. This was such a great discussion. Um where can people find you, Rachel? Um, I am on Twitter at at RMC031. Um, and if you from there you I've can email me or uh has a link to my email too. So feel free. And also uh is there a link to your newsletter in your bio? I can't remember. Uh yes. Yeah, yes. highly recommend subscribing to and Rachel's newsletter. And it's free news- to subscribe to that. Yes. So go yes. subscribe to Rachel's newsletter um, and follow her <laughs> reporting. And Abby, where can people find you? Uh, I am also on Twitter for the time being at, uh, <laughs> at Abby C. Science. Um, I tend to kind of dip in and out. So, you know, sometimes sometimes I'm not there. But for, for the time being, <laughs> that's where you can find me. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you both. As always, Medicare for all now solidarity forever stay alive another week Thank <laughs> you.